Welcome to BAFTA Conversations with Screen Composers in association with PRS for Music. Craig Armstrong is a BAFTA, Golden Globe, Ivan Novello and American Film Institute award-winning composer. He has also worked widely for theatre with bands such as Massive Attack, Björk, Madonna and U2 as well as recording his own original compositions and performing them live. He is the exemplar of a composer who sees music, all kinds of music, as existing on a level playing field. For film, he has drawn on a wide range of influences and worked with an even wider spectrum of collaborators. His film scores not only drive narratives and heighten the thrill of action, they compel us emotionally. His compositions can be lustrous, articulating the emotions of lovers in Baz Luhrmann's films, or a raging torrent that navigates us through the worlds Peter Mullen has created. Most recently, he has captured the pastoral beauty of Thomas Hardy's England and the life of Bathsheba Everdeen in Thomas Vinterberg's Far From the Madding Crowd. Please welcome Craig Armstrong. Could you talk about how you started collaborating with Baz Luhrmann and, and what he expected of you? In a way, I feel I had worked with uh, another great director before Baz because I'd worked with Michael Boyd at the Tron for seemed like 30 years. But I think it was only maybe six years, maybe. But, you know, we worked with actors like Peter Mullen and we did a great production of Macbeth and The Trick is to Keep Breathing. So, in a way, that way of, of working to do something ultra-special had been trained, <laughs> in a way. The, the, the way I got into working with Baz Luhrmann was that I had some young kids... And I thought to myself, you know, at that point, I just wanted to write whatever I wanted, you know. And then when I had these young kids, I thought, I've got to start making some money. So I thought, well, I'm really good at arranging, you know. I started to arrange for people and then quite quickly get known for it. So I, you know, ended up arranging for people like you 2 and all these people like Madonna and all this sort of stuff. Baz Luhrmann, of course, who loves his pop music... And especially I loved the, the work I did for Massive Attack, which, which for me was great as well, because before Massive Attack asked me to do their orchestral stuff, and uh, I, I was, I was a, a big, big fan. So, you know, that, that, that was a, a huge thrill for me to work with Massive Attack, you know. I mean, that first album, it was incredible, you know. So. But anyway, uh, I was writing my own material, and I, I got a record contract in Los Angeles with Jimmy Iovine, on Interscope, Jimmy Iovine said to me, uh, I know this great young producer called Nelly Hooper. So I went, that's a great idea. So the first time I met Nelly was in Los Angeles working at A&M Studios. And the reason I get into film music is quite a funny one, is that so I'm working my own record and I'm, I'm hiring string arrangers for my own record. But what I'd never really put together was that, you know, I'd gone to the Royal Academy of Music and learned how to orchestrate and everything and do all that. But then I was writing songs, you see. I'd never had my hands in an orchestra for so long, sort of thing. And in Romeo and Juliet, uh, I orchestrated it all and I conducted it. So it was a huge amount of work. I mean, massive, you know. You composed for Shakespeare on stage. How much of a shift was it for you for composing this? And then on top of that, having to integrate... Um, or, or with orchestration, having to integrate orchestration with pop songs and kind of melding everything together? Well, the funny thing is, I, I personally don't really see myself as a film composer or a, an arranger. 
or a classical composer. You know, I just see a project comes, like say Baz, the, the Great Gatsby, or two years ago, you know, when I did an opera for Scottish Opera. I mean, all I try and do is just write the best music I can for that thing. So I don't like jump into a whole new area, a different head to do a Baz Luhrmann film or a Oliver Stone film and then do the opera or a classical piece. I mean, it's just all the same thing to me, really. And when you're working on a project, if, if you have the freedom to go off um, and, and work on the film as a whole, how do you find, do you look for an entry point? Do you tend to have a process of working that you know helps you? Or is it in sort of unique each time? I think, I think what happens is, I mean, I'm working on a film right now with Thea Sharrock, and, and what happens is you... You start seeing the film, you know, and every time you talk about it with the director, it just slowly starts seeping in until eventually... It must be like learning a language or something. There's a point where it clicks sort of thing. Or, or even, like, you know, I've got a young daughter who's learning the piano, and all of a sudden she just made a big leap on it, you know, and there was no reason for it. It just happened. And I think films like that, for me, I just sort of let it bury itself in my subconscious, and then it's actually quite easy to write a lot of music is maybe not all right. You've really got to like the people in the film and, and sympathise with the director's vision, but it's not really going to happen. And as such, do you prefer getting the script as, as early as possible <coughs> and actually sort of immersing yourself in that world before you actually yeah, see the film? I've written lots of stuff just from the script, especially Oliver Stone's scripts. I mean, Oliver is an amazing writer, as you know. I don't have to tell him. <laughs> Sometimes I just get the script and I just write tonnes of stuff and... Well, not tons of stuff, you know, like 20, <laughs> 20 minutes of music. And uh, I did that for the Snowden film, and Oliver liked it. And uh, in actual fact, most of that stuff's in the movie. It's an interesting thing, you know, you know if you write music, it's just one of these things, you, you do take it for granted, or at least, I mean, you shouldn't maybe take it for granted, but I'm always thinking about it, or, or you know, I'm always excited. I mean, next year I'm doing mostly classical music, so I'm always thinking about, let's write the most weirdest piece I can write here. And you do uh, realise when you lent across like that, you had half the audience going, he's going to play. <laughs> I will play some. But yeah, I mean, but that's the way I sort of do it. That's really not a proper answer, really, because th th there's no real answer to that, actually. <laughs> and in terms of immersing yourself within that world, um, are, are you someone who would want to visit a set and, and sort of soak up the actual practicality of it, or are you quite happy to ensconce yourself in a room, in a studio? Well... I mean, I mean, Baz Luhrmann invites me to the set. I mean, when, it was, when we were doing The Great Gatsby, I was on the set when they were filming that. And, of course, it's great to see an artist as amazing as Baz Luhrmann, actually. Because, funnily enough, you don't often see what the director does, if you see I mean, you know. Because by the time you sometimes get it, it's, it's more or less, I mean, sometimes very rough. But you, it's quite nice to see a director in the middle of it, you know, with Leonardo throwing bottles of champagne into the swimming pool and stuff, you know. But, uh, and that's not even for the film, that's just... That's not even for the film. But, I mean, uh, so he does that, and then with, with, with um, the Gatsby, he'd film it during the day, and then at night we'd have these meetings, like maybe like 8 till 1 in the morning. But we, we, we got on very well. I mean, well, it's been a very long relationship. I mean, it's been like 20 years. It's a long time. We're going to... Um... <laughs> come back to Baz Luhrmann again in a moment, but um, we sort of move away from that. I'll say one thing before yep. we move from that. One of the things about working with a director you like, it should also be fun. 
you know. Uh, you know for any young composers here? Really good directors, as I said before, are very respectful. And, and that gets the best out of people because, you know, you, you want to do this, you know. You want to write this great piece of music, you know. So it's really, you don't, you don't find yourself with writer's block. You, is it because you have oh, this image in front of you that you're constantly responding to? That, that reminds me of something I said to this really famous concert violinist. I said, you know, do, do you ever forget your, you know, is it you're going on stage? It just loops at me with <laughs> venom. Uh, well, I mean, would it matter? I mean, there's lots of great composers. I mean, if it happens, it happens. I mean, so what? Um, We're going to move to 18th century England now. Um, This is uh, Jake Scott's Plunkett and Maclean from 1999. I know it's 15 years ago, but you're composing that piece. I I very much like working with Jake Scott, who's Ridley Scott's son. We got on very well, and I've always been very interested in electronic music, right, from when I went to college. And uh, although I'm I'm more known for orchestral music, I think, but, uh, you know, I've... I've got a big collection of vintage synthesizers and all this stuff. And, of course, a film like that was just good fun because you could mix them both. I pulled out all the old boxes and 1980s Russian drum machines and stuff like that and ECS3s. And it was fun doing that. It was especially fun working with Jake. He's, he was a very generous director. And what about Moulin Rouge, your next project with Baz Luhrmann? Because, again, mm. you, you've said that he's a perfectionist and mm. a stickler for detail. Because, you're, again, you're talking about a very specific period in time, and yet it's a location that within the film exists almost out of time as well. There was perhaps a little nod to Satie or something like that, but, I mean, minimal, really. I mean, I think Baz is famous for completely smashing everything up and sticking it all together again, isn't it? Musically, well, Milan Rouge was an interesting construct because the, the story was based in the songs... The skeleton of the whole thing was all these songs throughout the whole thing, you know. And th- those were the sort of markers, and then there was scoring between all that. So as far as the songs were concerned, you know, when you're arranging stuff, and it, it was kind of like going back to being a kid again, doing arrangements. And I, mean, I don't really do any arranging now, but arranging's quite nice because uh, you haven't gone through any of the emotional torment of writing it. I mean, arranging's a craft, really. Really, Moulin Rouge was half arrangements, and of course we tried to do them, some of them quite differently, you know, from the famous songs that they were. Yeah. And in between that, there was, like, the, the kind of emotional score. The thing we do with Baz Luhrmann is, I go out to Australia, then he comes back to Glasgow, so that, you know, m- my kids still recognise me. So that, that's where we worked. We did the score of Moulin Rouge in Glasgow, which is kind of bizarre. I don't think there was any period music in Moulin Rouge. I don't think so. So in terms of character and emotion, um, could you give us an example of, perhaps on the piano, how you sort of developed the Nicole Kidman character's sort of leitmotif or, or the themes around her? Well, I didn't write it at all. I mean, it's a song. The only thing I did that was quite interesting was, I mean, I mean the, the, the flyaway thing, I didn't, I didn't even buy the music for it. So some of the chords are actually slightly wrong in it, as I found out later. Because I just I did it by year. I just thought, I know that song, you know. But it worked out quite good because it's a wee bit different. But the one song that I did make a big thing... We were recording, recording, and I said to Baz, listen, I've done this really, really dark version of Nature Boy. And I think it's really good, you know. It's kind of more in the massive attack vein. 
massive tanks album, like uh, Heat Miser, tracks tra- tra- like that, you know, quite dark. And so I did this very, very kind of bleak. Well, not bleak, I think beautiful. There's a, there's a fine line between dark and beautiful, I find. And, uh, and what he did with that was he used it everywhere. Once I'd done it, that really became a massive part of the score of that. So, so that's interesting, you know, that you can do something that's just a chance thing. And he didn't, he didn't ask me to arrange Nature Boy. That's the one that, like, David Bowie sang on it. Yeah. But then that was, like, used as a motif a lot. But, I mean, really, uh, Someday I'll Fly Away was quite straightforward. I mean, I really just arranged it normally. Apart from Baz Normal, of course, it's, like, really over the top. I think one of the remarkable things about this film is... Mm. I can't think of many other films where the collaboration between composer and director is so great. And it's mm. I think the thing is with, with, with a Baz Luhrmann film is the, it's, it, it's a tremendous commitment to it. I mean, the first thing when you meet Baz to do a new project, you know, you'll ask, you know, did you definitely, you know, I want you to do it, but you know what, you know what it means sort of thing. And also it's a, it's a gigantic emotional commitment, I would say, as well, because... I think that's another thing that a lot of people don't think about. I mean, music, uh, you know, uh, I'm just not, you're just not writing out dots there, you know. It was nice, actually, my, my family were out in Australia, and we had this little house, but it overlooked this beautiful bay in Australia, and uh, we used to have these huge, big sheets of manuscript paper. And I remember my, my kids were, I had three boys at that time, they are just wee tiny things, you know. And they, were, they had these scooters, and they're scooting about, and I'm writing out that someday I'll fly away, you know. But I used to write it all in pencil, which is quite therapeutic in a way. I, I miss that. You know, you know, everything, obviously, as I said before, I'm interested in technology because now, of course, you've got every soft synth on the planet and all the latest software. But I do miss uh, just having a pencil and a piece of paper. How much do you talk about imbuing, uh, not, not just a scene, but, but within the scene, imbuing certain moments with emotion in Baz's films, because they, they really do run the gamut, often within a specific scene or song. Well, they're very emotional, and um, he asks a lot from his actors. His wife's incredible designer, of course, CM. He asks a lot from me. I mean, that's just your job, isn't it? I want to move on to another um, emotionally engaging film, and Philip Noyce's The Quiet American oh, yeah, right. uh, from 2002. Um, could you talk, first of all, about how you got involved in this? I'm trying to work out. Uh, much, much, much earlier, I had done a film for Philip Noyce, and we got on really well, and it was um, The Bone Collector. And um, I really liked Philip a lot, and still like Philip a lot. And uh, it's funny thinking of Baz and Philip because the, you couldn't get... I, I was thinking recently of the directors I've been recently working with, like, like, uh, just how, how different they all are and how they come from different areas. Because another weird thing is, of course, directors rarely really talk to each other. But anyway, go back to Philip Lewis. Um We got on very well in that film, and I, I, I love Michael Caine. Well, I mean, everybody loves Michael Caine, right? So he said, I'm doing this film with Michael Caine, and... I had actually read The Quiet American at school and I love Graham Greene's books and so I knew quite a lot about it and then when he said Michael Caine was doing it and he asked me to do it and there's also the chance to work with a lot of Vietnamese musicians which was really exciting. Just in terms of working with them and for instance the scene that we're about to see 
um, uh, with Brendan Fraser and Michael Caine imprisoned. Um, we don't have any music at first, and when the music does come in, it's yeah. incredibly quiet. It's evoking a memory or an imagination of, of what the woman that they both love is actually doing at that point in time, and we have a solitary voice that's right, that's right, that's coming in. There are hints of music from the region, but what's lovely about the whole film is it's, nat- it's, it's really not laid on thickly. No, it's not, no. And, and of course, it's, it's, uh, it's a gift to a composer, you know, because, I mean, there's... I mean, I don't know if I'm... You probably do know the story, but, you know, the, the Vietnamese girl's in love with the, the quiet American who, who is, of course, very destructive in what he's doing. And then, of course, there's this huge love affair with Michael Keane and... Is it Fong? I think her name is in the movie. And, of course, he plays it so sensitively. I mean, that, that's no way you put when music. You know, you, you really are just one of the characters of the film, and you've got to, it's got to touch you to try and relate to it, you know. And uh, I thought, I mean, it was great. But it's also great because I met him a few times and went out for dinner and stuff. And apparently he said that he wouldn't work on the film unless you were composing. Yeah, he's a fan, which is great. I mean, that's pretty cool, huh? <laughs> um, talk a little bit more about Philip Noyce. Um, this yeah. is... One of the most incredible years, that in the same year, 2002, he directed Rabbit Proof Fence and commissioned Peter Gabriel to do the score for. And it, it, it struck me, both scores were incredibly different, but they seem to have such a huge amount of freedom, the way that they come in and out of, of the scenes. How much freedom did Philip Norris give you, and did he sort of just let you go, leave you alone, and then arrive once you'd completed the score? I would say Philip's like I would say eighty percent of everybody I've worked with who just let you do what you want, and then once you've created an amount of work by the rules of selection, the things they don't like, say that maybe say say you've written twenty pieces and say eight of them go, well that gives you a much clearer idea where to go rather than someone saying I want something fast there. I want something sad there. I mean, that doesn't really work. That I, mean, I, I think, and I, and I do that. You know, when I make my own records, you know, if a guitarist comes, you just totally let them do their own thing. Because if you close someone down immediately, yeah, you might lose some magic, you know. But Philip's very, very open like that. And good fun to work with as well. OK, it's now become my mission to get you over there. Right, well, well, it's quite, um, it's quite Love Actually... Well, I'll tell you one thing about that that's quite interesting. That film score is that... It's probably the the award I got that I'm proudest of. I got an Ivor Novello for that, and the entire score is based on two notes. And uh, and that's why I I really like that award. (laughs) I'm a minimalist at heart. It's just that all the time. I mean, it's a good score for someone to analyse, actually. You know, at college or something. Because it's just based, it's just based on that, you know, like actually th- maybe three notes. That's all it was. So like the main theme, you know. Anyway. So it's just this, uh, and then when it's when it when it was very delicate, you'd, you'd be playing around with, you know. I sort of write music in two ways. If you play something, it's nice in a way, but also it limits you, of course. So what I tend to do with the piano is, 
someone asked me to write a film, for instance. I've got this little game. I try and do the hardest thing I can do and try and get out of it, sort of thing. So, like, you know, hit a chord like that, you know. You know. So, so, so say you choose, uh, and I try and choose the most screwed up melody I can think of, just because it's more fun, you know. So like, say you go, say that, say that for instance, right? So you go, you know. Time just for fun. Or somehow. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and that, that's quite a good way, you know. To, I mean, obviously, I'm, a, I'm an improviser, you know. And, but writing music is, is improvisation. It's selective. What I do a lot is when I get a film, is uh, I'll just put it on, write to it. You know, I'll just jam right all the way through the film. Say like Gatsby, you know. <laughs> looking at it, you know. Or, or whatever, and then what I find by doing that, and then you can be doing really mental stuff, you know, like anything. Then some of that, actually, say, say like a third of that might be good. And then the other way, which I think is quite a good way to write, is because right now you've all got all Composers have got computers and synthesizers and all the rest of it. It's actually quite good not to use anything at all. You know, I'll sing it into my iPhone, you know, like the, the, the tune for the Far From the Madden Crowd was one, you know, it was just that, you know. I'll finish that in a minute, but see, I would never normally write anything straight as that on the piano. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I'm much more like, say, like, love actually is more like what I'd write on the piano, you know that?
The bit is more like me is the bit where the tune goes a bit wonky. Whereas um, something like very straight, like you know, hymnal. Actually, I just sang it into my iPhone because you find the way you play effects, you know, you use a instrumentalist. I, I'm aware that we're, we're quite tight with time, so if it's okay with you, we'll skip over the Love Actually and Ray yeah. clips. Yeah. But just with Love Actually, you played part of a Glasgow Love theme, um, yeah. which, if anyone remembers, it's, it's the wedding video scene where Andrew Lincoln's showing her the video, he shot just her, not the wedding and Kira Knightley's watching it and realising. And it, it struck me what's interesting about subjectivity with your composing, that who, it's, it's called the Glasgow love theme, but whose love theme is that? Well, it's actually, there's a very, very boring answer to that. It's uh, Richard Curtis. <laughs> I uh, thought you said it, Richard Curtis's love theme. Well, it is in a way, because he named it. Uh, what it was, for Love Actually, like any other movie, there's probably, there was probably about five love themes, and to differentiate that one... Uh, because he came up to Glasgow that day, he just called it the Glasgow Love Theme, so there's absolutely no emotive basis for it but, at all. But more with your composing for that scene, we start off mm. thinking it's Andrew Lincoln's theme, yeah. but because of the shift in subjectivity, by the end of a scene, we're, we're with Kira Knightley watching it, and mm. I was just curious about your composing that. But it, it's, it seems it's the same piece of music, and yet there's this seamless shift from one person to another. Interesting thing about Love Actually was that when I met Richard Curtis, um, we decided right from the beginning we'd do it completely not humorous at all. Do you know what I mean? Like when she finds the video, you know, it wasn't at all going to be uh, postmodern in any way. You know, there was going to be no subtext to the music. It was like, I can't remember the actress's name, but you know, the Portuguese love theme, you know, when the girl comes yeah. down. Uh, Confers. Confers, right, sorry, he's a great actor. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> You know, it wasn't like, well, isn't this, isn't this really funny? You know, this could never happen, right? This is crazy, right? No, 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 we didn't do it like that. We did it like she is saying, at that moment, I have decided I'm leaving Portugal, I'm going to marry you. And that's why love actually works, actually. <laughs> because if you'd done it any sort of clever, if you'd approached it in any sort of intellectual, or even tried to go with the humour in any way, uh, although, of course, Bill Nahi. And all the songs were done up in my studio, which was a riot, actually. I mean, he's an incredibly funny man. But the, the, the parts that kind of bed love actually down... Uh, I mean, I know uh, that there's a lot of people who, who can criticise it, but I, I saw it as, as quite a, a touching film, really. I think Richard Curtis does believe that, which is optimistic, I think. Which, I, yeah, I, I can see that working through all these... His films, and yet, even whether people, however people feel about that film, I, I think everyone's generally the moment you get to the Emma Thompson narrative strand, everyone's kind of like, yeah, that that's just. I think it's one of these. Beautiful. I think it's one of those films. Even if you don't like it, you secretly like it a little bit. Yeah. <laughs>
Uh, you, you've talked about electronic music before and yeah. your most recent collaboration with Peter Mullen. Like all of your work with Peter Mullen, it's different from the previous score. Yeah, well, well I've, I've, I've been very fortunate and the three main film relationships I've had is Peter Mullen, the Magdalene Sisters, Orphans, Neds, Baz and Oliver Stone. I've done a lot of work for him now. With Peter, it's special because we're both Glaswegians. And this, this film was particularly special because we're, we're both actually from that background. So we had a lot of fun with it. I mean, I, I was saying, I'd say to Peter, it was a lot worse than that, Peter. <laughs> I, was, I mean, that's nothing. And I think this thing is so fantastic about that film is uh, Peter is fearless, really, as an artist. You know, just when you think it can't get any worse, it does, you know. <laughs> Because at that scene, the end of that scene, he's going back to his dad, who thinks he's going to kill him. So it just gets worse and worse. But uh, the costumes were brilliant in that film. You know, the world that Peter created in that film was brilliant. And I, and I suppose, obviously, Peter's work... And I've worked, I've worked with Peter right from the Tron days, when I was a lad. Did all these short films, you know? As you, you were mentioning... Uh, what was Fridge. it? Fridge and... Good day for the bad guys and all this stuff. And um, but he's amazing because he's taken us from well, visually surreal um, drama, orphans. But but the music felt incredibly operatic, through to a very understated melancholy score with the Magdalene Sisters. And and now this. One of the things I like doing is if you can work with somebody who's trying to like make the world a little bit better, like Oliver, working on his film with Snowden and. Doing say something like the Magdalene Sisters with Peter, you know, it's not just writing music, if you see what I mean. You're actually trying to put a spotlight on something. You know, with Oliver, it's like how people have slept, walked into being surveyed 24 hours a day by your government, which is obviously wrong. You know, with the Magdalene Sisters, it was about young women basically being kidnapped and tortured by the Catholic Church. It might go back to my days, because when I went to the Royal Academy of Music, um, my first teacher was Cornelius Cardew, the electronic uh, avant-garde Stockhausen's assistant. And at that time, which was a bit confusing as a young lad going down to the academy, you know, he had completely abandoned Western music. <laughs> like, he was doing lectures like Beethoven is bourgeois and all this stuff, and eventually, of course, got kicked out as a professor. <laughs> Cornelius was very into making your music work in society in some way, you know, like, you know, make it be functional. And something, he's dead now, but I think he might be proud of me because I think, I think what, what I try and do is, like, be useful as well as artistic and do projects uh, like Oliver's and Peter. Like, Ned's, for instance, is really about how terrible that situation is. But, you know, I, I mean, that's essentially what that film is about. It's about a depth of misery and poverty in a very rich country. It's totally unfair. So I like doing these sorts of films. We're, we're actually going to go to the other end of the scale now before I open the floor, 20 questions, um, to The Land of Decadence and Baz Luhrmann's The Great Gatsby. Um, I always used to think of this as the kind of film that people thought never got made anymore. It, it is an absolutely remarkable score, and it, I didn't think that it could become even more operatic mm. than anything that uh, Baz Luhrmann's done before, but this mm. is just on a monumental scale. The Great Gatsby, of course, an amazing piece of work by Fitzgerald, and it was a very difficult film to work on, but of course it was on such a massive scale. You know, it was, it was on, I, don't, I don't know if Luhrmann-esque is the word, but maybe it should be, but it was on a Luhrmann-esque scale, you know, these 
amazing sets. And um, can you talk about um, the sequence that we're going to see, which is the introduction to the world of East Egg, and and what Baz and you spoke about? Well, this is right at the very beginning. I wanted the, the thing to be quite thematic. So right from the very beginning, it's always great if you can kind of... If you're going to go down the theme route, I mean, which you don't have to. I mean, I, I love lots of music that don't have any themes and are just the electronic. But with this, I thought we'd go down the theme route. So I got it in right at the very beginning. So you go from the main theme in The Great Gatsby straight into Daisy's theme. So it's all very kind of quite old-school composing in a way. But, I mean, I, I love Hitchcock movies and all this, you know, and... Uh, it's, it's almost a bit unpopular to, to write lots of tunes, but it works in The Great Gatsby anyway. If there are any questions from the audience? Yep, if you can put your hand up. Hi, um, I just wanted to thank you for the music that you've been producing. It was my sister many years ago in a record store in North Yorkshire that introduced me to your music. Oh, and right. for me, some of the pieces that you write, sort of it's music that touches a soul while time can stand still and it's just you and the music and nothing else. And oh. I was just wondering if there's any music that you listen to or composers where for you time stands still and it's just you and the music oh. and nothing else. Oh. That's such a, such a lovely thing to, to say, and uh, it's very touching. Uh, I, I, I'm terrible. I, I'm a big emotional sap. I mean, I, mean I, 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 I cry when I play Bach and stuff like that, and there's lots of music that, that really touches me. Some films do that as well. I mean, I, I, I ban myself from watching cinema parody, so... In fact, my, kid, my kids have banned me from watching cinema parody, so... Because, you know... Why is Dad weeping <laughs> uh, on the couch? And my wife Larry says, okay, he's just watching cinema parodies." <laughs> so I've actually I've banned myself from particular movies, but um, I'm still very interested in in music. I buy a lot of music, uh, and in classical music, I do have some favourites. I, I love the Strauss Oboe Concerto, which is just like one melody right from the start right to the very end. I love Mahler. Oh, yeah, everybody loves Mahler, right? And I, I really love uh, Beethoven's late string quartets. And I like really, really abstract stuff. I like, I like quite a lot of quite radical electronic music. I mean, I listen more to that these days than tunes, really. I'll come back to composers in a moment, but um, you but, mentioned... Thanks for saying that. Um, I'm afraid we pretty much run out of time. Um, just, uh, just one last thing you mentioned about Glenn Gould. It's always fascinated me with him that he was an absolute perfectionist mm. and a technician... And yet, at the same time, when he reached that moment of perfection with his recording, he would still hum and sing over it, so you'd hear his mm. voice in the background. I mean, what an amazing artist, right? And it conveys pure emotion. And um, Vim Vendors, when he was a critic before he became a filmmaker, um, he put together a collection of his writings and called it Emotion Pictures. Oh, right. And it struck me, looking at your body of works, the one thing that de defines it above everything else is that it is emotion music. Right, right, right. Um, if you haven't seen Far From the Madding Crowd, we unfortunately don't have time to show any clips from it. It is a really remarkable film with an absolutely stunning score by Craig. I would also say, amongst the many other great films and great scores that he's composed, um, Peter Mullen's films, they are available on DVD. Um, they are incredibly special, and they're the work of a truly great British director who I don't think is given enough credit. He's more as an actor and he really is a great filmmaker. Thank you very much to BAFTA and PRS for Music, also the Royal Albert Hall, but most of all, can you please join me in thanking Craig Armstrong. Thank you very much.